Kia ora koutou, kia ora ite whanau, ko Dan toko ingoa, hello everyone, hello family, um, my name is Dan, it is so good to be with you all, it's a pretty packed morning this morning isn't it, those of you who are up the back there squinting at the slides, uh, I apologise, we'll make that a bit bigger. Um, we want to uh, continue this morning our series that we started last week called Eastertide, if you weren't here last Sunday. I want to encourage you to jump on the website, check out the podcast and listen in as to what we're doing with this series and why we're doing it. But essentially, Eastertide is a season of the church, 50 days between the end of Easter resurrection through to Pentecost, the Spirit of God coming at Pentecost. And it's a season of the church for us to look around. And in particular, it's a season for us to look around and ask the hard question, what happens now that Jesus is risen? What do you do with that bit of information. What do you do with a story where he has risen? So I want to invite you to stand. And we're going to read today's text together. We stand as a way to honor the authority of Scripture in our lives, to, uh, to posture ourselves with our bodies and say we honor this. We stand together as a community to say that this is important to us. And today's reading is from Luke chapter 24. It's the next story. This is from the New Living Translation. If you have your Bible, follow along. If you have your phone, look it up quickly on BibleGateway.com. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we want to encourage you. There's physical Bibles by the New People's Area, and you're welcome to grab one. They are just a gift to say, here, have a Bible. We think this is one of the most important books you could have. Grab one, take it, it is yours. I'm reading today from verse 13 through to 33. The story today is called The Walk to Emmaus. So that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. Now, just in case you're tuning in for the first time this morning in the last couple of weeks, they're talking about Easter. They're talking about this moment of Christ being killed on a cross, on a Roman death device, put in a tomb. And then suddenly, and amongst that, there's this story emerging that he has, he has arrived, he's risen, he has come back. So they're talking about this. As they talked and as they discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept, this, kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you're walking along? They stopped short. Sadness written across their faces. And then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all these things that have happened here the last few days. What things? Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. They said, Oh, they said, he was a prophet who did, a powerful, who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they've crucified him. We had hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to Israel, to rescue Israel. And this all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning. They came back with an amazing report. They said that his body was missing, and they have seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to sea, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. And then Jesus said to them, 
Oh, you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He took them on a pretty wild Bible study, in other words. And by this time, they were nearing Emmaus and at the end of their journey. So Jesus acted as if he was going on, but they begged him, oh, stay the night with us since it is getting late. So he went home with them. And as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it and he gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and as he explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. They, had found, they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. This is our scripture today. This is our text. Grab a seat. Grab a seat. What a story. What a story. You know, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Robert Butler says, story is a yearning meeting an obstacle. Story is a yearning meeting an obstacle. Every good story has a problem to get around. Every good protagonist in a story, the ones that we resonate with and the ones that grab our hearts, they have transformation to go through, don't they? And it's here in the wake of Easter, as these disciples are scattering and trying to find their bearings again, that we see the disciples going through the greatest obstacle that they have faced. It's the death of Jesus. Now, one of the commentators that I read this week, one of the commentaries I read said, if the parable of the prodigal son is one of the most exquisite stories told in the gospel of Luke by Jesus, well, then this the recounting of the story of the road to Emmaus is perhaps Luke's most exquisite scene sketched in his gospel. Here he is retelling of an event that captures so much of our attention because so many of us know that this is not just a theory, but this is reality. So many of us feel this yearning of the obstacle that we too are confronting. We know what it's like to be disappointed. We know what it's like to walk in that disappointment. We can relate. So two people are walking along a road. One is Cleopas. The other is unnamed. It's, it's likely that the unnamed one is Mary, his wife. Or some scholars say that it may have just been another male counterpart. But along the way, they are joined with Christ. So there's three characters in the scene, Christ and the two walking along the road. But actually, there's possibility of another one. There's possibility of one more to enter the scene. Some scholars say that Luke may have left the unnamed person unnamed because it can be you. You can enter the story. You could be the fourth character, walking with the earth beneath your feet and the soundscape of the wind and the birdsong. You in deep conversation with the risen king. You may be disorientated from the wake of disappointment. You joined with Jesus. You experiencing his encouragement, his correction, his care, and his hospitality. So if this is a story 
that is a yearning meeting an obstacle, then what is the obstacle here? Well, these two people are crushed with disappointment. They are crushed with disappointment. In verse 17, it said, sadness was written all over their faces. And then in verse 21, they are crestfallen because the outcome has just not been what they had hoped for. They are gutted. Their hopes have been dashed and they have been let down in this story. The Messiah that they thought Jesus was has turned out not to be. He has not kicked out the Romans. He is not sitting on a throne. He has not liberated Israel. That's what they thought he was going to do. And he has not done as they hoped he would. They were not expecting him to be killed on a torture device and placed in a tomb. The end of their small revolution has ended. Disappointment is the result of unmet expectations, isn't it? Disappointment is when what we expected to happen didn't happen. Think about it. When reality and expectations align, when they are in sync, when they are together, there's often joy, there's satisfaction, there's celebration, there's a sense of gratitude. There's a sense of everything is as it should be and we are content. But when they are apart, when our results and our expectations do not line up, there is a space in between. And in this space in between, we find ourselves sitting in disappointment. You know, think, for example, the sports teams who are expecting the big win and then they lose that big final. Disappointment written upon their faces. Think of the fans who support those sports teams who are expecting the big win and they lose the big final. Disappointment written across their faces. We expected to win that and we didn't. You know, I think of mothers and fathers who are expecting, expecting a child, but they lose it. Disappointment becomes deeply ingrained in their being. I think of those who are planning huge trips overseas, the trips of a lifetime, thousands of dollars invested into that trip, and then a global pandemic closes the borders. Disappointment. I expected to go, and I cannot go any longer. Or in the case of Cleopas, and possibly Mary, possibly a man, or possibly you. Jesus, the prophet, the teacher, he isn't the Messiah that we thought he was. And like the woman who went to the tomb last week, this is not the ending we were expecting. And it has turned out to be the unexpected that has confronted us. We are crushed with the disappointment of what we thought was going to happen not happening. You know, to be disappointed is a legitimate feeling. When the outcomes that we were expecting aren't met, it is a legitimate feeling. It is not wrong. To feel disappointed. It is not wrong to grieve. No, 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 no. It is right. Because we are hopeful people, we are often going to find ourselves in places of this grief. We are often going to find ourselves in spaces of disappointment. It's part of the terrain. When we have hopes, we will have disappointments. But there's a twist in this Eastertide story today. And this is the beautiful story and the beautiful twist. While they were right to feel disappointed about Jesus' death, they have been looking at the whole event in the entirely wrong way. 
Have you ever looked through a telescope? It's not a rhetorical question. You can say yes or no. Some of you are like, oh, yes. <laughs> I love it when he gives me permission. <laughs> Have you, I'll do that again. Non-rhetorical question. Have you ever looked through a telescope? Yes. Good. Or maybe binoculars. Look through binoculars. Yeah. A telescope or binoculars, they magnify what we look at, don't they? We put them up to our eyes and through the lenses we can see more detail further away. We can see a magnified picture. Have you ever turned a telescope around and looked at it from the wrong way? What happens then? Opposite. Everything gets smaller. Everything gets tiny. In fact, it actually hurts your eyes because it's like, oh, this is not the way these lenses are meant to be working. And like everybody else in Israel, these two people walking along the road to Emmaus have been looking through the wrong end of the telescope. They had been seeing the story of Israel and their Messiah as a story of how God would, would redeem Israel from suffering. But what they did not see was that God would redeem Israel through suffering. In particular, the suffering that he would take on himself as Israel's representative, as his Messiah. And their statement of the events, they crucified him. See, this is what they say. They crucified him, but we had hoped he would redeem Israel. They're looking the wrong way. And very shortly, in just a small span of time, the apostles are going to be saying, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The telescope got turned around. What a radical change. In Luke's recording of these events, it's only a short time when they actually have this moment of turning it around and seeing it in a different way. The resurrection is the turning of the telescope. It is the event that makes the difference in this story. And not just this story, but the entire story of the scriptures. So let's take a look at this turning because it's so important. Firstly, Jesus, with the ones who are walking to Emmaus, teaches them again the Scriptures. This is like last week all over again, but here it is again with the presence of Jesus with these people in conversation. He teaches them again the Scriptures. And here what we're encountering is the power of the reinterpretation of Scripture through Him, through Christ. He just takes this moment and He says, you're not seeing this correctly. You're not seeing these events in the right way. You're not seeing them as the seedbed for what is coming. Instead, you're seeing them as standalone things. You know, it's one thing for us to know the Exodus story off by heart because we learned it in Bible study or school, or Sunday school. It's another thing for us to know that it is the story of Christ and we are the exodus event. We were the ones in suffering and slavery to sin. Whoa, I'm spitting. I'm getting really excited. I'm sorry about that, Julie. Um, we were the ones who were in suffering of slavery and sin and systems and powers and Christ is our miracle. Christ is our Passover. Oh, hang on, Daniel, warping with the text. It's an Israelite context. It's back there. No, no, no. This is what it is to reinterpret the scriptures through Christ. Christ is our Passover miracle. We are all the ones who are in slavery. He is the miracle. It's one thing to know the 23rd Psalm off by heart, to be able to say it, or because we've got a tea towel that's framed hanging in, the, in the, you know, one of those ones or whatever that our nana has or something like that. It's one thing to know the 23rd Psalm. It's another to know the Christ who is the shepherd walking with us through the valley of shadow of death, who will walk with us in our suffering. 
It's one thing to know the story of Israel and Babylon exile, Babylonian exile, taken from their land, their temple, and all the expectations that they had to do with their God. They find themselves in exile yet again. And it's another thing to know that Christ is the one who entered into the exile and has brought his people back to build a whole new temple. And unlike the second temple of Israel, which was built again with stone, this one is not built with stone. It's built with people. It's built with us. See, this is what it is to look at the scriptures in light of what Jesus did. The two on the road, they could see the scriptures in this whole new way because Jesus was showing them the scriptural stories were not just an end in themselves. They're not isolated events, but they are this connected seedbed for what the Messiah was going to come and do. Christ is the Passover. Christ is the shepherd. Christ is the new temple builder. On and on and on he would have gone as they were making connections throughout the whole Torah together on that conversation. Which brings me to a mistake that we are often guilty of making for ourselves. A mistake that we often make when we find ourselves in the same moment as the people on the road to Emmaus. We are often reading ourselves into the text in too much of an inflated way. We need to recover a Christ-centered hermeneutic. If you don't know what the word hermeneutic means, it just means interpretation. When we sit with the scriptures and we are reading it, and you're all in the business of hermeneutics, you all do this, right? We're all theologians because we all have a way of thinking about God. We're all people of hermeneutics. We're all people of interpreting the scripture. When you read your Bible, you are doing hermeneutics, The question is, are you doing a good job or not? No, seriously, this is the question. Am I doing a good job of my hermeneutic? Am I looking at this in the right way? We need to recover a Christ-centered hermeneutic. Matt Chandler, in a terrific talk, you can find it on YouTube, um, he says, uh, the Bible's not about you, is the name of the talk. And he says this, I just love this. Um, I was going to show you the clip, but he's just way too excited for you guys. You wouldn't wouldn't like it. I'm going to just read you the quote, okay? He says, We keep infusing ourselves into the story of the Bible like we are the hero. This happens all the time. For example, in David and Goliath, you're not David. Your trouble in life is not Goliath. And you're in a lot of trouble if you think this is how it goes, because when you sling a stone, guess what? You miss. Well, I've got five stones, you think. Well, what happens when you miss all five? If you view the scriptures through the lens that all the superheroes in the Bible are you, then you put on yourself a weight that you cannot bear. Jesus is the greater David. So who does that make us? Not the hero, but the Israelites watching David go out to conquer. You know, in Mark, it's put beautifully by John the Baptist. This is one of my favorite moments of the start of the Gospels. John the Baptist put it so beautifully when he realizes who Jesus was going to come and be. And as Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message, I just love this. The real action comes next, says John the Baptist. The star in this drama to whom I'm a mere stagehand. He will change your life. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. But his baptism... A holy baptism by the Holy Spirit will change you from the inside out. You know, John the Baptist is able to hold an expectation that puts him in the correct position with Christ. It's humility. It's knowing who Christ is. 
And it's also knowing who he, John the Baptist, is too. And in this is something incredibly liberating. It's incredibly liberating. He can let Christ be the one who does all the heavy lifting. This moment of reinterpreting the scriptures through Christ is crucial for those two people on that road. As in their disappointment, they are still carrying the wrong expectations. And the moment that they realize something bigger is at play through Christ opening the scriptures up to them in the way that he does, in that moment, a key turns in the lock, which starts to liberate them from those wrong expectations. This is the framework through which they realize that through Christ, the Messiah has come. And with this new framework in place, they can now start to see a whole new scene of possibilities. The scene is literally changing from grief and mourning to a new excitement and a new possibility. As they said for themselves, did our hearts not burn within us as he taught us the scriptures? Did our hearts not come alive as he did that? We need to recover this Christ centered hermeneutic because it gives us Christ centered hope. Hello? I think that's pretty good, that one. I'm not going to do this very often, but uh, can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> that's, I don't write many good lines, but I'm, I'm proud of that one. A Christ centered hermeneutic will then give us a Christ-centered hope. Most of the disappointments we're walking along with when it comes to life with God is actually just the untangling of poor hermeneutics. It's the untangling of the wrong hopes. We need to recover the right ones. In Johann Hari's book, Lost Connections, he says, what if depression is, in fact, a form of grief For our own lives not being as they should. What if it is a form of grief for the connections that we have lost, yet we still need? And one of the many uh, connections he writes about in that book is he writes about the fact that we need as human beings a hopeful and secure future. We need, oh, I don't think I have that there. That's all right. We need a hopeful and secure future. Another way of writing that could have been to say, we need an expectation that we can truly put our faith in. And here's the thing. To put faith in something, it really helps if that thing has been faithful to begin with. Doesn't it? We sign up to things where faithfulness has been a marker so far. We have trust in it. And that is why this first step that Jesus has on the road is so important. And that's why I've spent so much time of this talk laboring it today. He helps them understand the scriptures have been pointing to this moment all along. And they can put their faith in it. It is a faithful story of a faithful God who has shown up to do his work faithfully. And as the unnamed person on the road, remember I said you could be that person? As the unnamed person on the road, we too can have Christ reinterpret the scriptures for us. A greater depth to the story of the scriptures can emerge. A greater connection as we look at how all the pieces come together on this beautiful trajectory of God's faithfulness in doing what he said he would do. We can see for ourselves, Christ Christ has become 
the one who we can indeed put our expectations in. The second thing that Christ does on this walk is he is present with them in person. And here in the story, what we notice is that Christ as a risen Lord, as Christ as a risen human, Christ as the risen being is with them, present with them. Note here the powerful thing. Christ is walking with them, talking with them, serving them. His proximity to them is close. The resurrected person is indeed present. Now, there's several things I could have taught on here as I sat with this this week. There's all kinds of directions I could have taken this moment. But as I sat with this passage all week long, what actually emerged at this point was not something so much of teaching of the head, but actually something for the heart. As I sat with this this week, something in my heart said that there was something to say about this moment for some of you in the room. So allow me, please, a prophetic moment. A prophetic moment. This won't be for all of you, but I do believe it's for some of you. For those of you who have been walking in resurrection life for quite some time. And you've been walking with the Spirit well. You are being called to walk the Emmaus-like road with a couple of other people who need you to do so. Around you, there may be sadness written on the faces of a couple of people. Or there may be hopes that are shattered. For those of you who are maybe older, maybe you're asking a question, I don't know where I fit around here. Here's where you can fit. On this journey, walk with two people. Talk with two people. Serve two people dinner. Break bread and remember Christ together. Help them to know the story of Jesus. Pray for them. Minister to them. Stay focused on them. And that, that is how you could serve here. Like I said, I don't think that this prophetic word is for everybody. But I do think it's for some of you to hear today. Some of you are being called to walk the road with some other people. Now you might notice what I've just said there and think, but just a moment ago you said we're not the heroes of the story, Dan. What I'm saying here is that, no, 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 you're not the risen Jesus walking the road uh, in your resurrected glory. That's not the story for you. What I'm saying here is like Jesus walked with the disappointed, like he postured himself there, like he placed himself there, like he spoke and served and ministered, so too must we. This is the resurrection work amongst us all. We can place ourselves near to those in need. You know, if, if you're leading a circle, this is what it looks like to lead a circle, isn't it? You place yourself around some people and you decide to walk together. Maybe if you're hosting a table, this is what it looks like to host a table, isn't it? You open up a space to invite people to come so that we can talk. Maybe if you have an intentional coffee that you have with someone every week. Maybe you have an intentional time where you're praying with someone once a week. Whatever those intentional steps are, File this little thing away into your imagination. I'm walking a road with these people. I'm walking with them. We're going there together. Finally, Jesus, at the end of this story, shares a table with these two people. He eats with them. He prays with them. 
This is the power of remembering Christ. You know, if we think back to the first meal in the Bible, the moment here is heavy with significance. In the first meal of the Bible, the woman took some fruit and ate it. She gave it to her husband. He ate it. And then the eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. This is in Genesis 3, 6-7. But here, the tale was told over and over as the beginning of the woes that had come upon the human race. Death itself was traced back to this moment of rebellion, and the whole of creation has been subjected to the decay, futility, and sorrow of that point. But Luke, echoing that story to his audience, knows exactly what to pull out here to get our attention. And he says this as they took the bread, as he took the bread, blessed it and broke it, he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. In the Genesis story, their eyes were opened and they recognized they were naked. They recognized their shame. In this story, their eyes are open and they recognize him. Another telescope turning around moment. And Jesus has actually literally turned the telescope around because it wasn't his house. He wasn't the host. He wasn't meant to even be breaking the bread. But the typical rule breaker he is, gets in there first, takes the bread, and he has this moment of breaking it, blessing it, and they start to recognize it. It's like they could start to see it. Hang on, I've seen this before. <laughs> I've seen this before. And the two that have walked with him, talked with him, and discussed, and the questions, as they sit down to eat, it's all starting to line up. And then, boom, like a spark of lightning, they recognize him, it says. They recognize him. This act of breaking bread and blessing it and offering it to them. All the conversation they've just had, all that's been going on, boom, they recognize him. Death has been defeated. God's new creation is brimming with life and joy and new possibility. And it's burst into this moment. The Messiah that they only moments ago longed for is sitting right in front of them. This is the moment that they remember. They suddenly remember what's going on. They're transported to this meal that they've been speaking about together, this meal that Jesus had taken, where he took the bread and the wine before he was crucified and says, eat this, remember me, drink this, this is the new thing I'm doing. And in this remembrance, we can keep reminding ourselves where we can come for help. Remembrance means we keep coming back. Remembrance means we revisit the scene. Remembrance means we acknowledge that there has been change. Remember is to be vulnerable, to confess that our expectations may have been wrong and where we have not had them met. To remember is to remind our innermost being, deep down beyond the surface, of the bigger resurrection story that we have all been invited in to live. To remember is to receive His gracious gifts that they may open our eyes. And so these three ways, reinterpretation through Christ, the presence of Christ, and the remembrance of Christ. These are the three ways in today's text that Christ lovingly addressed the disappointment in these disciples. This is how he turned the telescope around the other way, helped them to see the right story. This is how he graced them with his presence, close and personal, not far, but right next to them. 
This is how he shared a new meal with them, a meal that, unlike the first meal of humanity, didn't pile more shame upon them, but instead opened their eyes to the new reality. And so today, my benediction is just very simple. May Christ, the one who is resurrected, may he turn your telescope around. May he turn your telescope around. I want to stand, invite you to stand and together, after sharing a story that involved a meal, uh, we too are going to do the same. We do this every week here as part of our liturgy together. We come to the Lord's table. 